these decorations um, may remind us that uh, we're in the season of Advent, and uh, it's every year, right? That's the best part about it. Every year, uh, during these four weeks to lead up to Christmas, we celebrate the season of Advent, where we remember, we remember how our Lord Jesus Christ came into our world at Christmas over 2,000 years ago. And we also eagerly await his promised return at the end of all things. As we are reminded of what Christ did when he first came to us, we are filled with hope for what Christ will do when he comes back again. This year, our Advent sermon series is entitled Prophet, Priest, and King. Over the next couple of weeks, we will be looking at several different aspects of Jesus' role as Christ, the promised Messiah. As we look at these different aspects of who Jesus was and what he did to certain people and things in the Old Testament that foreshadow that aspect of Jesus. Sometimes we call these foreshadowing Old Testament people types of Christ. Uh, that means precursors of Christ. They had important roles, but roles that Christ would one day do in a greater and more complete way. Let's read our scripture text for today, which comes from the book of Luke, chapter 7, verses 11 to 16. Soon afterward, and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large, a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you gather us today um, on the heels of a celebration and on the eve of another one. Uh, we ask that you perform the miracle that feeds our soul. This week, as you might have guessed, the type of Christ that we will look at are the prophets of Israel, hence the little beard symbol. In particular, we are going to look at the famous prophet Elijah. Elijah, uh, as a prophet, was a representative of God, kind of like an ambassador or a messenger. So his job was to speak the word of God to his people, the Israelites, so that they would understand God's heart how God was feeling towards his people, and what he desired for them. The first word from God that we hear Elijah speak comes in the book of 1 Kings chapter 17. And he goes, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So this is a classic example of a prophecy, a prediction or declaration about the future. But it's more than just a random prediction about the weather. Elijah's prophecy is a message of anger and judgment. Elijah's speaking to the current king of Israel, Ahab. And Ahab uh, had led the people of Israel away from the worshiping of God, the true God of Israel, and instead promoted worship of Baal, the fertility god of the surrounding Canaanite people. The land is full of the sin of idolatry, and it doesn't look like it's getting any better. What will get the attention of the Israelites? Maybe a crop-killing, economy-destroying, multi-year drought? Maybe. Elijah's prophecy is frightening, and it's intended to be. 
But the intent of the prophet is not simply to declare punishment for the punishment's sake. What Elijah is doing here is calling the people to repentance. Through Elijah's prophecy and every other prophecy, God is saying this to his people. You have forgotten me and disobeyed my law. This Baal, this whatever you are worshiping instead, who you try so hard to please, so he will bring rain to your crops, he cannot help you. No idol can. You need my help. So return to me, and I will help you. Alas, Elijah's words seem to fall upon deaf ears. While the land dries up and dies, King Ahab and the Israelites continue to sin and worship Baal. So eventually, Elijah calls for a showdown with Ahab. They meet on Mount Carmel, along with 450 false prophets of Baal, and people from all over Israel. So Elijah went before the people, and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. So from sunrise to sunset, the 450 false prophets of Baal, they dance and sing and chant and cut themselves with swords. Uh, thank you. I'm quite loud, aren't I? Uh, and not a spark, right? Um, they're there all day, and they're tired, and they sit down, and it's Elijah's turn. And so at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, The Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah's miracle of fire from heaven sends a message loud and clear. The Lord, he is powerful. The Lord, he is here. He is not absent. He is present. He is not apathetic towards his people, but his heart beats passionately for them. And for one glorious moment of heavenly fire, God was not only heard through the lips of a prophet, but seen and felt and known by all of Israel there on the mountain, as if God was right there with them on the peak, his presence with them. But the moment does not last. Elijah does more prophecies and more miracles, but the Israelites and their kings slide back into idol worship again. Dozens of other prophets follow in Elijah's footsteps. There are more dire prophecies and terrible disasters and terrifying miracles, each time calling Israel to repentance. But every time, the Israelites quickly forget God again. Eventually, after hundreds of years of the same thing over and over and over again, Israelites' prophets, Israel's prophets, they simply, they just stop appearing. No more. No more prophets, no more prophecies, no more miracles and no one to speak God's word to the people, to be God's representative or ambassador. 500 years, and the people of Israel begin to wonder in that time, where is God? Has he given up on us? Have we messed up? Maybe just one too many times. 
We know something of how Israel might have felt during those 500 years, don't we? We have heard God's call to repentance, too. So we try to read our Bibles and to pray regularly. We try to attend church and give and serve whenever we can. And we try to give up our own idols, our little favorite vices and addictions. But no matter how much and how hard we try, our sin always catches back up to us, doesn't it? And when we've done that one thing that we promised God, we'd stop doing yet again for the hundredth time. Sometimes we can't help but wonder, is this the last straw for God? Maybe after all he's done for us, he's finally gotten tired of all our BS and given up on us as a bad job. There's another character in the story of Elijah who we might relate to on a more personal level. She's a poor widow in a small town called Zarephath, who houses Elijah during the drought. She's not named, but many of us might be familiar with the story where God miraculously provides her and Elijah an unending supply of flour and oil so they can eat during the drought. Uh, and that's a happy story. It's a really wonderful story of provision. But then the story takes a tragic turn. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and to kill my son? Does the widow's sorrow and rage feel familiar to you? Is there something in your life that makes you feel like God has something against you? Maybe someone in your family has passed away unexpectedly. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your career dreams have been crushed. And maybe that depression or the anxiety just never stops coming back. And maybe that sorrow and rage mixes in with a nagging, sinking feeling that God is just giving us what we deserve, right? It just, I've taken everything good that God has given me, and I just sin, and I sin, and I sin. And when our lives start to crumble, it feels like God is just reminding us of that sin, is he? Just shoving it back in our faces. Um, my son, Luke, who's playing over there in the, uh, in the nursery, he's three, so he's too young to have experienced a real tragedy yet. But sometimes painful things do happen to him. A few weeks ago, uh, Michelle was away at the Tuscarora Women's Conference with a bunch of you uh, for the day, and so it's up to me to make him lunch and while he was eating at the kitchen table, I step out of the room for 30 seconds. And then I hear two sounds that every parent knows too well, a loud thud, followed by a piercing cry. And you can probably guess what happened. Uh, Luke had stood up on the chair, turned around, leaned forward on the back of the chair, and the whole thing just tipped over. And his fingers were right underneath of the back of the chair when it hit the floor. So I run back to find Luke sitting on the back of the tipped over chair. He's sobbing. And two of his fingers, they're squished. They're purple. They're swollen. Uh, and I'm not proud of this, but before I even got back to the kitchen um, to see what happened, my thought, my first thought was not, oh, gosh, I hope my son is okay. I hope he's okay. No, my first thought was, kiddo, I told you a million times to not stand on the chair. Right? And prom I promise I comfort him afterwards, but <laughs> that, I did say that too. I did say the chair thing. 
when terrible things happen to us, right, we might think that God thinks and feels the same way that I reacted to my son, right? Well, guess you're just getting what you deserve, you disobedient little punk, right? But, but that's not how God responds to this widow, right? When the widow says, did you come to just remind me of my sin and kill my son? Elijah does not tell her what sin she has committed that makes her deserve her son's death. No, instead, he says this, give me your son. He took her from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on the bed. Then he stretched himself out over the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother, and he said, look, your son is alive. And then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. As Elijah gives the boy back to his mother, God is speaking not just words to the widow's ears, but directly to her heart. He says, I have seen your pain. I am here. I will help you. I will love you. And I will restore things to the way they should be. And I will wipe every tear from your eyes. Despite having a prophet living in her home for months, years, the widow truly hears God's word for the first time. She can finally see God's heart. It's not a heart that delights in punishment, but a heart that goes out to the broken and the hurting. Nearly a thousand years later, Jesus is coming to a small town called Nain. And as he approaches, he encounters a funeral procession for the only son of a poor widow. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Did you catch it that time we read it? The Gospel of Luke uses the exact same phrase as the Book of Kings. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. To be completely honest, this is not a Jesus story I remembered at all until I was starting to write this sermon. Um, nor had I ever drawn the connection between what Elijah does for the widow at Zarephath to what Jesus is doing here for the widow at Nain. But those parallels, they were not lost on the crowd that was around Jesus and the widow. They knew all the old stories about Elijah and the prophets, and this is how they responded when they saw what Jesus had done. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The more the crowds look at Jesus and more they see what he does and hear what he says, the more they see Elijah. Look, he speaks judgment against the hypocritical religious rulers, just like Elijah prophesied against King Ahab. Look, he multiplies loaves of bread and fish to feed the people, like Elijah multiplied the flour and the oil for the widow. So people start to wonder, who's Jesus? Who is this guy? He talks like a prophet. He performs miracles like Elijah. Clearly, he too is a man of God, and the word of the Lord from his mouth is the truth. But there's something that's different about him, something more powerful than Elijah. He's not saying, Lord my God, 
Please let this boy's life return to him. No, he's saying, young man, I say to you, get up. Not even Elijah had that kind of authority, did he? And so even Elijah, or Jesus' closest disciples are kind of unsure about who really he is. So one day, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, Christ, the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. The likeness and fullness of God himself, dwelling among his creation. God has come to help his people, indeed. Not as a distant power sending representatives or ambassadors with messages and signs for us, but coming himself. Jesus is not just speaking the word of God, and calling people to repentance. No, he is the word of God. He is God's heart in flesh, embodied, incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. While the people's hearts are yet full of sin, faithless and wandering, God draws near to those very people. They can finally see that God's heart goes out to his hurting people. Physically and literally, God goes out to his people to help them. Don't cry, Jesus says to the grieving widow. I see your pain. I am here. I will help you. I love you. And I will restore the things to the way they should be and wipe every tear from your eyes. Don't cry, he says to us. I see you. I'm here. I will help and love and restore you and wipe every tear. But what about our sin? What about the fact that no matter how many times God seems to call us back to him, we continue to fall and forget and forsake him? What about the little idols and addictions, our bales that we can't seem to let go of? What about the fact that we know, deep down, we are too sinful to deserve help? Friends, brothers, sisters, Jesus came to do what the Old Testament prophets could never do. They were like us, sinful men, the prophets could call us to repentance, but they could not kill our sin. But Jesus, he was sinless. He was the perfection of God, and yet man. And so, as Elijah once faced off with 450 false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Jesus ascended the mountain of Calvary to declare a showdown with the sin of the entire world. God took all of his burning, fiery, righteous wrath against the sin of mankind, and instead of pouring it out on us, he poured it out on a single sacrifice, Jesus. Why? So that each of us, though we are still sinful and deserving of the fullness of God's wrath, we could instead experience the fullness of God's love as if we were Christ Jesus himself. In the prophetic words of Christ himself, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. All the judgment that our sinful hearts deserved, God's own heart bore it instead. Jesus died in our place, so that through faith in him, through trusting in Jesus to be the righteousness we could never be, we may experience life. Our sin was killed with Christ. But the best part is this, 
he did not stay dead. No, three days later, Jesus' greatest, greatest prophecy came true about himself, that he would rise again from the grave and defeat death for all time. And so as the word made flesh was resurrected alive again, God's word was spoken with more clarity and power than had ever been before. The Lord, he is powerful. The Lord, he is here. God is not dead, but alive. God has not given up on his people, but his heart beats and beats and beats with compassion for his people. And for the rest of history, God's word will not be merely heard from the lips of human prophets, but will be seen and felt and known by those who believe in Jesus Christ. God himself has come to be with you and with me. Emmanuel, God with us. As we close here, I want to share one final thing about Jesus and Elijah. There were way too many cool things that I, I wanted to pack into the sermon, and then Pastor Dan was like, yo, man, you can't preach for an hour. Um, but one of the reasons Elijah was such a famous prophet was how he left the earth. He didn't die. He was swept up to heaven in a fiery whirlwind, and his own disciples could never find his body, though they tried. The final pages of the Old Testament contain a prophecy that Elijah will return in the final days. Jesus, after he was resurrected, also ascended into heaven, didn't he? But he too promised to return at the end of all things. Through Advent, we remember how our Lord Christ Jesus came into our world once. And as we are reminded of what Christ did when he first came to us, we are filled with hope for what Christ will do when he comes back again. Revelation 21 tells us what we can look forward to. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Amen. Lord Jesus, come back soon.